Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to Friday with Friends. Today, I have a new friend, Lauren Magarelli, on with me. We have a delightful conversation about yoga and her studio, Bhakti, which is located in Beacon, New York. She's been teaching yoga for many, many years, like myself. And so we talk about her evolution in yoga, how she came to open up a studio, how she's managing with the pandemic, and so much more. I hope you enjoy our talk today. Welcome, Lauren, new friend of mine to have on the podcast. So happy to have you here. Thanks so much for having me as well, Laura. So let's just start off with some of your background. I know you own a studio in Beacon, New York. And as a fellow studio owner, I know all that goes into owning a studio. Did you have an initial desire to open up a studio? What's your path in yoga that brought you to being a studio owner? Well, it was a very long path of loving movement and teaching. I um, grew up as a dancer and have been... My mom put me in ballet because I was a very clumsy little girl and she thought I would have some grace. And I fell in love with ballet and with dance. And I am still very clumsy, (laughs) except for um, on the mat usually. Yeah. And so... Because of my dance background, I was introduced to Surya Namaskar in one of my jazz classes in college. And I really liked this rhythmic breathing and it stirred something in me. I was like, wow, what is this? This is really, really unique. And then I had to take PE in in, uh, college and then I decided to go to this yoga class as my physical education requirement. And it was this very old lady in a room with nothing but mirrors and a bunch of uh, football players. (laughs) And, uh, And instead of me feeling like I had to do things right or kind of, you know, I think because I was so flexible, you know, the perspective that I was, you know, giving was like, this looked easy or, you know, because I was surrounded by very large muscular um, athletes. And that kind of triggered this curiosity. I had moved to New York City after college to pursue dance and 
never really was good at uh, auditioning and noticed that the anxiety just kind of wasn't working for that. And anytime I ever got a dance job, it was from me taking class and someone approaching me and saying, Hey, would you like to dance on this or come through this? So in that perspective, I was longing for movement, but wasn't realizing that I was going to, you know, have the capacity to really audition well. And so from there, I, at the time, this is 1997 or something, 98, when I was introduced to yoga in school, in college, and then moved to New York in 2000. And so at that point, I decided to just try every yoga studio that I could possibly find in New York, which wasn't that many at the time. (laughs) Now, obviously, a much different perspective. But um, yeah, so I, I literally went to every yoga studio that I could possibly find and took classes for over a year and really loved the the entire experience. Like I just became obsessed with with the breathing really more so than anything else was that I would still continue to go take ballet classes and after I'd really been practicing for about a year, going back to a ballet class, I noticed that I had stopped breathing during, you know, the bar, the whole like first part of class. And I'm like, wow, I haven't even taken a deep breath this entire time. I'm holding so much tension. You know, this is, you know, I just want to go back to a yoga class. <laughs> and so that was the the inspiration. But as a, to answer your question as to like, when did I want to open up a yoga studio? I always thought that I would open up a dance studio. That was something as a kid that I wanted to teach. I loved teaching the little kids when I was, you know, an older dancer in high school, teaching the younger girls. And so for that journey, I just kind of kept taking more and more yoga classes. And then I really started to hone into who's offering a training. And some places would be like, how long have you been practicing? What's your credit card number? And then other places were, you know, you have to do this, you have to be, you know, a student for this amount of time and, you know, had some really thoughtful ways to apply. And so with that, you know, I became certified under the 200 hour and never really thought I was going to actually teach the practice of yoga. I still thought that I was going to be a dance teacher owner or or do that kind of route. And I got a job in a middle school in New York City. um, And the principal was a lover of dance. And so she hired me right out of college. And it was a full-time position. It was five days a week of dance. It was like pretty much a full major subject in this middle school in Queens. And I had no idea what I was getting myself into. Um, (laughs) But it was, again, just this aspect of teaching. And I realized that more of what I was actually offering these kids was coping skills on breathing, on on anxiety. Well, let's try this for... So I'd gotten my training... uh, um, my 200 hours. So I knew stuff, right? I knew something about yoga enough that I could teach pranayama to these kids in a way that we're going to just do side to side alternate nostril. Let's try this, you know, and I never labeled or codified any of the, the things that I was offering them. It was just try this breath before your math test kind of thing. And that just kind of fueled me to then decide that I wanted to teach yoga. I wanted to teach more of this yoga practice versus 
you know, point your toes, uh, the emotional aspect of how does it feel, you know, how, how can you embody your body and find it to be home? And especially with middle school boys and middle school girls, and of course that's puberty and how to really encourage them to love moving, love to just, you know, how many times I've, I've seen where, you know, kids or just anybody doesn't just even open their arms and just like breathe and expand and feel big or take up space in that kind of sense. So that was kind of the spark of this whole journey. And then after teaching, you know, I was working full-time as a dance teacher. And then I changed out of that middle school job into an all-girls private school, which was much more ballet oriented. And, you know, I thought that that would be a great opportunity to kind of have more time to teach yoga because it was a little less, it was only like four days a week instead of five. And then ironically, I got the courage to do some auditions and did start to dance off Broadway a little bit and had the time to do that. But then really realized that I really just wanted to continue the yogic path and that you know, the the dancing or the ballet was going to be there as structure, but that there was a lot more that I wanted to share. And so when did you open up your studio? So I opened up September 10th, 2016 was my grand opening of Bibakti. And it's a very significant day because it's my grandmother's birthday. And it's my my aunt Angel, who was kind of like my other grandma on the other side, um, it was her death day. And so it was a really you know, auspicious moment for me to open on that day and kind of celebrate. My grandma was kind of the first one that introduced me to really enjoying dance. She loved to do like line dancing. And we, you know, would, she taught me all these fun little line dances in her garage as a little kid. And my Aunt Angel was a really amazing storyteller. And she just told me stories about my ancestors and my family and really inspired me. And so those two you know, entities in my life were pretty much how I like to approach yoga now, which is I really love the structure and the the dance of it, the movement of of the medicine of of moving and the healing of it. But I also love the the stories. Bhakti is is you know because of the word bhakti meaning devotion or or kindness or love. But really, the the mythology, the bhakti mythology of what what are the stories behind these poses? And what is our story? What's our personal story? You know. How, where have we come from? What have we brought from our ancestors? You know, how are they supporting or inspiring us? And so as a teacher, that's, or that's what, you know, was really valuable to me to open up Bibakti so that I had a place where people could feel that they could move. And I love sequencing. I'm, you know, love, did a lot of choreographing when I was younger. So the choreography of of the shapes and the sequencing on body parts and how to use the mythology and the inspiration all have kind of encompassed of what and how I teach now. Um, so that's a big part of it. <laughs> so when prior to this past year, I mean, what, what were some of the most heartwarming or I guess 
you know, positive outcomes of opening up a studio? And what were some of the things that surprised you that were very difficult? Well, the the best part of opening Bibakti is that I felt the freedom to share what I was passionate about, which is mantras and the mythology. And I love the harmonium and I've been playing it for years now and like to sing a lot. And uh, that part of it to, to build a community for, for people in this town or whatnot, where people can come and feel celebrated and safe. And, you know, that was like the best part, having these kirtans and having, you know, not obviously a traditional kirtan. I do a lot of covers of uh, other songs and stuff and thread mantras in it. It's one of my favorite things to do is bringing, you know, Western and Eastern perspectives, especially through sound. But um, having those nights and seeing people dance and seeing people bring food and, you know, just feeling the community, the community and, you know, I have two kids and, and so they'd be there and, and, you know, having everybody else bring their kids and it just being this kind of literally the, the essence of like Shiva Nataraja where he's in the ring of fire and there's all this chaos going on, but somehow there's still this center of uh, an internal peace in some way. And so that was, those were the highlights for sure of, of opening and watching something that I, felt like I spent so long creating and building and studying and learning. Those are the best memories. The the Zoom thing with this whole pandemic that really kills me or the hard parts is that I the harmonium sounds horrible. <laughs> it sounds so bad on Zoom or whatever platform, you know, it's it's a it's a painful that vibra- um, the vibration that's so unique to well any kind of music but the harmonium in particular. I'm sure it gets a little lost in translation over over this celluloid screen. Yeah, it's pretty intense of a lost in translation, let's just say. It's it's really bad. <laughs> I'm curious, did you have you ever experienced any negativity for being, you know, a white woman teaching yoga, teaching mantra, using harmonium? Have you this has been something, you know, because I, I started yoga just a little bit before you in 95. That was, I think, something that not many people really thought about, but it has become a much more recent, you know, conversation. Oh, yeah. And yes. <laughs> so I'm curious if that's been, you know, if you've, you've experienced any backlash. I mean, fortunately, I studied harmonium from this sweet little Indian man named Guruji. And he, you know, taught me the Sargam scales. And I felt like I was at least being introduced to it in a traditional form. But even for me, when I was going to kind of interrupt myself, even in the process of saying, you know, when I host a kirtan, right, for me to even say that word in the perspective of what I am offering, because I am not Indian and because I am white and all of that certainly has you know, stigma to it. But I think that yoga is consistently evolving and is a living practice in the individual who is offering it. And I would never want to, you know, say that I know more than I know. And I think that being very honest and 
you know, sharing the, the vulnerability of, Hey, do as I do because it's worked for me. Mantra has transformed so much of my personal struggles with anxiety, with trauma and all of those things. And so it's just another tool in the toolbox. And I think because of feeling that internally, like, hey, what am I doing, you know, as a white woman playing this classic instrument and um, how the tradition of mantra was passed on, you know, I feel because it's the Bach theme way, it's almost like when you think of ballet, it was so structured and so codified. And in the same way with yoga and how Brahmin priests were the only ones that were allowed to, to chant and people of lower class weren't and all of these boundaries. And then how Martha Graham and Isadora Duncan and all these dancers, you know, Doris Humphrey escaped this boundary and said, hey, I can move this way just like you can move that way. And it's almost like shoots and ladders, that game where you know you can go through all of the windy curves. Or if you get really lucky, you can hit that one spot and go up that really long ladder and get really close to the top, right? And I think that's what bhakti or mantra has done for me is that this is just a direct way and anybody can do it. And that's what the bhakti movement was, right? That I don't have to be a Sanskrit scholar to chant this mantra. And I can use some repetitive japa, positive vibration, and I can feel different. And as soon as I heard the harmonium, I just like, I was, I remember the exact moment in class and my eyes were closed and I opened them and was just like, what is that? I have to touch that. I have to hear that again. And, you know, it was a couple of years before I even actually got to touch one. <laughs> and when I did, I didn't pull the ishtops out right. And I completely was like, it was making this crying sound. And I was like, oh my God, I'm breaking it. And so, you know, that's when I got really lucky and found my first teacher. But I think the way that I offer it is honest in the sense that hey, this mantra really works and you can say it in English, but if you do let it come out in Sanskrit, you know, there's something, the sound ah is a heart opening sound, ah, right? So just any sound like that. And that's how I taught it to, you know, students on the Upper East Side in one of my first yoga classes was I was like, should I own, should I not own? You know, you know, in a lot of studios, uh, and gyms back then, because there wasn't so much yoga, there were so many studios, right, would say, you can't own here, you know? And, and those were the jobs that I didn't take because I knew that I was much more interested in the underlying effects of yoga based on sound, vibration, breath, and not, okay, let's touch our toes kind of back to this dance perspective or workout perspective. And so, you know, with that, the way that I teach mantras, I'll sing like Tom Petty, free falling, and then throw in Om Namah Shivaya in the process. Or, you know, I've made up lyrics to um, Jolene by Dolly Parton and turned it into a Rade and a Krishna and, you know, made up all these fun lyrics about, you know, uh, Krishna's skin is the color blue and 
he plays the flute and sings for you. And, and that's kind of the playingness of knowing the stories of the, of the Bach mythology and then threading it through, you know, so that it doesn't feel like it's so foreign. And then also just giving people permission to, you know, explore, you know, singing hallelujah is just as valuable as singing, you know, Om Namah Shivaya. So who's to say that we, whatever works for the individual, right? The, the constant evolution of, of the practice. But I've been really fortunate that I think the only kind of judgment that I've experienced has been my own. <laughs> well, that's wonderful. I think, you know, everything you said just resonates. I do think that it's so important to recognize how yoga has evolved and to not just look at it's not linear at all. It, it, you know, diversified in so many ways. And even the way it started, like you mentioned, was very, was not open to all, was incredibly um, insular. And so I, I think it's, you know, incumbent upon us to, to learn about the history. But like you said, to apply the things that have worked for you, I think there's nothing wrong with that. And to, because when you're sharing the things that really worked, especially in these profound ways, that's coming from your heart. You know, that's, that's like saying, you know, uh, this is something that I have contended with, anxiety, fill in the blank. And the, this particular kind of prescription, for lack of a better word, has really helped me. And to share that is, it is, it is true bhakti. You know, it is the devotion of that kindness. Can you elaborate a little bit more about your own battle with anxiety. I mean, anxiety is something, I'm sure it's been around. We know it's been around. It's been, you know, back in the 50s, they were just drinking and having Valium and stuff like that. But there's definitely more a presence of it as a as part of the just daily conversation, the anxiety levels, and, and it's certainly with the world like it is now. But can you talk a little about your path with anxiety? When you first realized like this has a name, it's not just me, it's something that I'm experiencing it and then it's not who I am, but something that I am sometimes battling. Yeah. Well, I think most of the highest frequency of my anxiety really showed up when I became a mother (laughs) much more than that was like, and because of the awareness and how long I had been practicing yoga once, you know, I was 31 when I had my, my first, my son. So I'd been practicing yoga for quite a few years before that. And so I was like, wow, this is really, you know, intense. I think before that, I didn't have as much knowledge about having anxiety. I would maybe call it nervousness or I was scared or something. But in general, that that's when it kind of started where I was like, okay, this is anxiety. And... It really showed up after between my my son and my daughter, who's now five. I had um, a a pretty late uh, loss of a baby, and the actual um, like coming back into my body and feeling all of the feelings that I was feeling when I would be walking down the streets of New York and see a pregnant woman coming towards me and then just kind of break down and start crying in the middle of the street, you know, that I realized, okay, this is really intense. And that's when I really was like, this is anxiety. And then I wasn't sleeping at that time either because of the trauma and all the loss and waking up pretty much every night with 
you know, a lot of tears. And so I think that was when I really felt like, okay, I gotta, I gotta figure out how to get grounded again and get back in my body and to feel like I have, you know, power again or strength. So, yeah, I mean, the conversation that I would like to at least direct is that Shavasana is one of the most profound poses that created a release and an acknowledgement of how to get through trauma and get through the anxiety. And for almost a year after I had lost the baby, I would take a class and I would be that that student that would leave right before Shavasana. And at the time I was working at the studio that I was doing this. And so I'd leave my mat there and I would just literally sneak out and go sit on the couch. And I would cry because I felt like if I stayed in the room when I would lie in Shavasana, I would literally start to tremble and I would have to roll on my side. And I felt like I was going to start sobbing so loud that I would disrupt the class. And I knew that I was getting through the pain and the grief and all of that because I was eventually able to lie in Shavasana and maybe cry, maybe not, but be able to be in that position, that shape, that space of vulnerability and be held there. What is it do you think I do know um, in Shavasana that lots of things can come up and I do know the people, and that's why I never have been when I had the studio in person. I, you know, some teachers would say, oh my God, these people always leave. And, and I say, you just don't know what's going on. Like you can't ever assume it's, oh, they're just busy and they're just, they're cutting out the most important. How, how are we to say this is the most important thing? We just don't know. Everybody's different. So you can't make assumptions. But what is it about Shavasana? Do you think, I mean, I know I have my, I'm sure they're similar, but what is it that you think that brings up this, these feelings? Well, I think that if I would not be moving before the act of Shavasana, it's almost like the act of meditation, right? In, in the, the eight limbs of yoga, you obviously go through, you know, the yamas, niyamas, asana, pranayama. You get to this place where you're going to dharana, dhyana, and then meditate. So you, you have to kind of acknowledge that because of that path, that the, the moving and the physical opening up of tissue, muscles, fascia, you know, joints, all that stuff, and then getting to Shavasana, that there's such an, an energetic shift and you know, the whole blueprint of your body changes that when you do finally get to Shavasana, things have opened that were not necessarily opened an hour before. And because of that, the body has such a more susceptible way of releasing and letting go. And it's like a dog. A a tired dog is, you know, a calm dog. A tired body is, is a quieter, calmer body. And so I think that in that aspect, when lying in Shavasana, you're you've already prepared the body to be ready to let go because it's tired, you know? Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I think that I I can't actually recollect if I ever just like lied in Shavasana and tried to do that without physically moving because of my love of movement. I don't think I've ever just 
lied in Shavasana, at least during that real traumatic time to kind of have that dichotomy. I don't have that, but I do that know that now, you know, if I have five minutes, I put my phone on a timer and I'll lie in Shavasana, even if I haven't done anything, mostly when I have to kind of make a decision that I notice the anxiety is coming up and I, I can't figure out the question or the answer. And I, I'm just getting too overwhelmed. Now I can just, you know what, just take a Shavasana, lie down, take a five minute reset. Like you're plugging in your phone, right? Just plug in my body and drop in and allow that. But I think because of the moving and all of the opening that there is permission, really, that's the word, permission mm-hmm. to to let go. Yeah, and release. Now, how much of your own experience with being postnatal, anxious, grieving the loss of a baby, how much of that have you brought into your own teachings? I mean, do you find that this is a population you want to work with in particular? I think it all just kind of fell into my lap, ironically, because for such a long time, you know, sharing that I couldn't even look at a pregnant woman (laughs) without bursting into tears. And then now being, you know, especially at Bivakti before the pandemic, I, you know, I had a mommy and me class and a lot of moms, you know, are, were coming to me and it almost felt like, I was like a magnet for like the moms. <laughs> um, and I think it's it's really ironic that, you know, it's come into this full circle of, hey, you know, what I love about Beacon and why I really thought this was a good place to open a studio is it's a, it's a lot of word of mouth, you know, and be like, oh, you, you should go ch- check out Lauren, go talk to Lauren or, you know, go take that mommy and me class or whatnot. And I think that was you know, the word of mouth and has kind of started this whole, you know, new chapter of my life where, yeah, I work with a lot of pregnant moms and a lot of, you know, postpartum issues and stuff like that. And I think because of my past, I certainly can offer a sensitive and vulnerable place where I've really been there and and know what some experiences in pregnancy are just so unexpected and, and just you just have no idea you know what's gonna happen and, and really to understand that we can have all of these grand plans and then what that quote is that you know make plans and then God laughs in a way, right? So Right. Well exactly. And the thing is, you know, there are books out there, I'm sure, and there's now support groups, but you know, there's a lot of expectations of when you get pregnant and you have you know, you're pregnant of what you should be feeling. And if you're not feeling those things, if you're feeling even the opposite of them, like resentment or anger or, you know, whatever it is, that's all they are. They're feelings. It doesn't mean you don't want a baby. I think it's important to acknowledge there's lots, lots of feelings that come up, some probably unexpected considering you are in this position of like you're birthing a baby and it seems like everything should be hunky-dory. And, and yet a lot of times there's, there's so many reasons why it is not that. And it can be hormonal. It could be like, you know, past your own childhood stuff surfacing. It's just a lot. And I love women supporting women. I'm, I'm a huge fan of that. And I love mamas supporting other mamas because I think there's, we really put a lot of burden on ourselves to be all these things and can't let down the guard that we might be feeling. 
X, Y, Z. And so that's amazing. So tell us a little bit about this new chapter that you're in now and what kind of offerings you have. Yeah. I mean, I offer a lot of honesty and I often say, I love being a mom and I hated being pregnant. (laughs) That's, you know, and I've met a lot of women who loved being pregnant. And so, and, and having, you know, been pregnant three times and have two kids and had two different births and they were completely different and two different yoga practices while pregnant with both, how it is such an individualistic experience. And even having, you know, one pregnancy doesn't mean that the next one is going to be in any way comparable, you know, because of mostly the mind state that one is in, especially for me coming from a place after loss. We this the things I was doing pregnant with my son Gavin. I mean, I was standing on my head and probably not doing a lot of smart things at the time, you know, but felt great. Really never had any bats of any nausea or anything and just really felt very good in my body for most of the pregnancy. And then to have such a anxiety about this the pregnancy with my daughter you know, just not wanting to actually like move and just barely feeling comfortable because I was so um, just worried that I was going to lose this baby, not wanting to know the sex of the baby and not wanting to know, not buying a thing for the baby. You know, my mom would bring, you know, she was like, can I, can I buy something? And I'd be like, no, (laughs) don't bring any baby things into this house until we have a baby in our hands. It was a really, you know, completely different perspective. And so now I think I just offer a place where, you know, I can share my story and also just be able to see just by a woman's face, how are they feeling in a class? I mean, obviously now it's different, but when it was in person, you know, you just had to look at her, look at her eyes and you just tell like, I'm uncomfortable or I'm not, you know, this feels great, Lauren, or this doesn't, you know, and, you know, I, I miss the act of touch, you know, I was really good when I first had pregnant women in my class when I was a brand new teacher, you know, I didn't want to touch them. I didn't know what I was doing. And, and, you know, just having that ability to feel like if a pregnant woman came into my class that I could just serve her and make her feel seen and special and, and understand that whatever she was going through was okay, you know. And one of my favorite things that really taught me this was there was a, another teacher who was pregnant at the same time with her son and, and with my daughter. At the same time, we were only about a week apart. And I remember we were taking a class together and we were kind of like whispering and, and back and forth. We were about 27, 28 weeks. And our practices, you know, we we're both strong yogis, very, you know, capable of doing a lot of shapes and whatnot. And how different the practice looked and just being so enthralled with, wow, that feels good to you, but I don't like that. And and that was just a real epiphany in the sense of this, again, is such a unique experience for each person, no matter whether they have yoga experience or not, you know, and to see it in that way was just such a really cool thing to just be like, wow, this is so amazing how we are so different <laughs> doing, yes. experiencing the same thing, same class, you know, same time frame, And we're just so different. 
Can you tell us a little bit, the listeners, about what you have to offer if people are interested in learning more about your teachings? Yeah. So at this moment, I'm teaching a lot of classes online on Zoom at bhaktiyoga.com. And we have prenatal classes. And I'm also working with Mama Soul and teaching a pelvic floor workshop all about women's health in the upcoming weeks on February 25th at four o'clock. And it's basically just another safe place for women to take advantage of strengthening their pelvic floor and using sound. Our throat very much mimics the way that our you know, vaginal canal kind of looks and stuff. And so just using sound and using, of course, all these beautiful yogic poses and practices, a lot of breathing to empower and to help anybody, whether it's post or, you know, prenatal or just, you know, any woman who's feeling not in touch with the pelvis, really. Which is, I think, many more than we imagine. Getting out of the pandemic, what do you, where do you see yourself going? It's so fascinating because to be honest with you, I, I just don't know. <laughs> I see myself going, you know, I grew up in Woodstock upstate in the Catskill Mountains and I love nature and trees and green grass and moss. And I, I see myself going to the woods really. And I see myself, you know, just teaching and offering what I I love and hoping that we can return to some kind of normalcy at some point. If not, I have a nice big paved parking lot in the back of the studio and we've got some good outdoor yoga and I can't wait to have some kind of, you know, outdoor chanting night where we can at least sit safely and, and sing together and dance. But I I definitely I really just don't know. And I think the most important thing about that is that because I don't know that I'm actually okay with that, which is something that always been kind of a planner and had this drive to create this studio or to, you know, open something. And and I think that this pandemic has just taught me that it's okay to not know what's going to (laughs) happen. And that I shouldn't have the plans. (laughs) I love that. And I think, you know, for anybody, but I do know I have a lot of anxious people in my life. And that is like, that has been, for the most part, a nice side effect is that that kind of not being in control has also allowed them to just be a little bit calmer. And it's ironic in a way. It's like (laughs) when you could bustle around, you just bustle around. And when you can't, when it's taken away from you in the same way, there can be just a little bit more of a calmness and I think that that's a great way of saying we don't know and it's okay. We'll, we'll just, I'm like you. I hope to get back to being able to teach in person, to be of service, to be able to touch people. I love it, you know, really loving that interaction. And I think we all crave that, you know, that community. Um, it's not quite the same when you're looking through a screen. So I hope we, I hope we get back to that soon. And it was such a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, thanks I so hope we much. get to meet in person. <laughs> that would be great. Yeah. Thanks so much for taking the time and having this conversation with me. Yes. And thank you for sharing so honestly and, and beautifully um, your background and your passions. 
And so everyone go look Lauren up. We'll have all of her information in the show notes. And as always, I'm pulling for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.